Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this afternoon's guest moderator, children's book editor of the New York Times Book Review, Maria Russo. Thank you. And welcome to all of you. Uh, I know you're all super excited um, to meet Rick Riordan, who's waiting to come on. So I'll be brief. Before uh, Rick comes on stage, we wanted to give you a little taste of um, the trailer for, for Blood of Olympus, which some of you may have seen, but let's look at it on the big screen. For every aspect of nature's wonder, there's a god to thank or blame. In Greek mythology, even at the very top of the tree, nature itself is attributed not to something, but rather to someone. Maybe the ancients found comfort in knowing they could reason with the powers that ruled the universe if those powers had eyes to see and ears to listen. As the heroes of Olympus embark on their final quest, there seems to be no reasoning at all with the Earth Mother, Gaia. Partly because she's still sleeping, but really, how would you talk to her anyway? Oh, hi. Uh, listen, you seem like a rational planet. The demigods stand a better chance of communicating with the dead. I'm referring, of course, to Gaia's suitors. Gaia has released them from their eternal graves to assist in her campaign to wipe out the Olympian gods. If there's one way to build up an army quickly, it's to sign up the dead. They far outnumber the living, and they're easy to feed. They'll eat just about anything. The crew of the Argo II will attain two key insights from the suitors. Percy, Annabeth, Jason, and the others will learn when and where Gaia will awake for the Feast of Hope, a party to end all parties. Our demigod heroes now have 15 days to travel to Athens to prevent a sacrifice that could obliterate the world. But Athens is on the opposite end of Greece. The most direct route would run them through the Straits of Corinth. But that's a trap. Cyclops armies line the shores. At the same time, our other group of heroes heads west with some pretty heavy hardware in tow. The Athena Parthenos may be the only answer to peace between the Greeks and the Romans. As it stands, a war between the two camps seems inevitable, as Camp Jupiter's de facto leader, Octavian, marches on Camp Half-Blood. If the Greek and Roman demigods can't figure out how to work together, the destruction of Camp Half-Blood will be the least of their problems. The world as we know it will cease to exist, and the sons and daughters of Olympus may be the only ones who can save it.
now it's my great honor to introduce a man who is a hero in my home and probably all of yours, Rick Riordan. Thank you, guys. Okay, hi. Hey, how you doing? Good. So my first question is a bit of uh, wishful thinking. Is this really the end of the Percy Jackson books? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I never like to wrap everything up completely with a nice tidy bow. I always like to have unanswered questions, places the readers could go in their own imagination to follow the story on their own. Uh, you'll see Percy's narrative again next summer in uh, Percy Jackson's Greek Heroes, which is a follow-up to the Greek Gods book that came out in right. August. That's a beautiful book. Uh, I love that book. John Rocco did some great it's, illustrations. It's really, if you haven't seen it, it's really worth taking a look at. Yeah, and past that, I don't know yet. Um, I've got other things that I'm working on now, so I don't know. It's a little too so, early to say. Okay. Well, how does it feel to be, for the moment, finished with these characters who you spent so long with? You know, I tell people it's like... Um, sending your kids off to graduation. You know, in some ways it's, it's sad and it's bittersweet, but it, it also makes me feel proud. Sort of they're going on their way. They're, you know, they've, they've changed so much and I've gotten used to them and they're, they're great characters. I love them all. Uh, but sending them off into the world, you know, when it's time, you, you kind of got to do it. You did it. <laughs> well, um, let's see from there. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, Writing Blood of Olympus, the final book after so many, did you read through all of them again? Or how do you keep it all straight? And do you have new research for each book? That's the tricky thing about the ending of a series is, yes, I did. I had to go back and reread all of the books and take fairly meticulous notes about which, you know, like plot threads I hadn't wrapped up yet and where I wanted to go with each one just to try to make sure that I've resolved everything that I want to resolve. Um, and yes, I do new research with every book. Usually I start, I, I'm a sort of a visual thinker, so I start like a map. Oh. I put out a map of Greece and I said, okay, I'd like them to go here, 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 here. These are interesting places. What monsters can I plug into these locations? And then I do my research and then I sort of weave the plot around that. Were you surprised uh, by any plot threads that you realized needed much more or needed to be developed? Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the trick for me was that there were seven demigods in the series, and that was a crazy number to work with. I mean, if I had to do it over again, I don't know, I'd probably say like three demigods answer the call, but uh, seven was tough. But now that I have them all, I, I couldn't do without them. I love them. Um, so that was the trickiest thing. Yeah, that's actually something I wonder about with most uh, books that take you into a world there are fewer characters and you, you have so many and they're all so individual um, is there one that is your favorite or that you feel you identify with the most you know I like them all for different reasons I think the one that's that's uh, really grown on me the most is Leo Leo Valdez he's just awesome uh, his chapters are so fun to write um, and I, I guess because he's from Texas and I'm from Texas, I kind of have that extra kind of uh, simpatico with him. I, I, you know, I get him. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say Percy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Percy, yeah, but, you know. Uh, and just since we're in the, the choosing favorites mode here, uh, Camp Half-Blood or Camp Jupiter, if you were... Well, I mean, just for fun, Camp Half-Blood, that'd be a lot less work. Uh, Camp Jupiter, if I really wanted to learn how to fight, I think I'd go to Camp Jupiter, because that's more like boot camp. I mean, I think you'd really get a lot out of it. Your skills would improve, but it would be a lot harder than, than the Greek camp. Interesting. 
Um, do you, how, how do you see the difference between Greek mythology and Roman mythology, just to, if you had to sum it up? Well, I think the, the big difference is the Romans were really big on borrowing things from other cultures and, and putting them to use. And they had to find a way to plug it into their imperial system and sort of justify who they were as Romans. So they used the same myths, but the gods took on different character. Like Jupiter became a lot more uh, paternal and a lot more disciplined than Zeus had ever been. And Mars... Uh, is a lot more um, militaristic, but in a good way, than Ares, who's just this kind of figure of chaos and destruction. Interesting, yeah. Um, now, just to turn a little bit to the fans, um, I experienced firsthand the intensity of your fandom when I tweeted that I was uh, doing this today, and within, and you retweeted it, and within minutes, boom, 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 I had about 800 followers. <laughs> So, uh, thank you, anyone who followed me. Um, do you feel that, uh, I know you have in one of the more um, intense relationships with your fans, of, of all writers, really. Do you uh, take feedback, or do you feel that your fans' reactions have helped you shape the series? Uh, I mean, in a very, very general Broadway, yes. I, I don't normally... I don't normally follow it to a degree that, I, oh, well, that person suggested this. That's a good idea. I'll do that. Usually, they're reacting to things that I've pretty much already decided on, already written, it's already done. But it is helpful for me to know how they respond to that, how they react, what they liked, you know, what resonated for them. So in a broad sense, yeah, I mean, being on like Twitter or uh, Tumblr or whatever just kind of lets me take the temperature of the, the readership and, you know, kind of see where we are. Uh, but I don't... I think it would be dangerous for me to follow that too closely because it would get me pulled into too many different directions. Right, yeah. And uh, when you think about your fans, one thing that happens over the course of writing a series that a lot of authors talk about is that their original fans age, you know, get older. And so this happened with Harry Potter. They have to kind of write each book with a slightly different age target audience. Um, but... With Percy Jackson, it seems as though you didn't quite uh, do that as much. So how did you make that decision? And Yeah, you're right. It's very strange. And at this tour especially, I've noticed a lot of uh, kids coming up to me, writing me, saying, I grew up on your books. And I'm like, oh, wow, thanks. That makes me feel old. Because, you know, to me, it doesn't seem like that long since Percy started. But you're right. I mean, the kids that read it first back in whatever, 2005, I mean, yeah, they're in college, in some cases out of college now, which is crazy for me to yeah. think of. But, you know, I think of it like, like I always thought of it when I was a teacher, that I teach middle school. You know, that has always been my target audience, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Mm -hmm. The fact that it appeals to kids younger than that was a real surprise to me. I did not expect that. It's great, but I didn't expect that. And on the other end, high school, college kids reading the books, I didn't anticipate that. I'm not necessarily writing to that audience, but hey, I mean, if you enjoy the books, if, if uh, you like you know, my corny sense of humor and my you know, uh, Greek mythology, that's awesome. You're, you're welcome to read along. Do you, uh, right now, there's a lot of talk about grown-ups who read children's literature. Um, do you think about that ever, about uh, grown-ups who maybe aren't even parents, and if, if they're reading you, and if that's... You know, that's, that's fine. I mean, it's not going to change the way that I write or what I write. I'm going to keep sort of my, my imaginary classroom in my mind as the audience that I envision. Uh, but 
anybody's welcome. If you find them to be fun, if you enjoy them, fantastic. You know, but read them with, with the idea that this really is a middle grade novel. That's right. what I'm trying for. So if that's not your thing, you know, just realize that that's the kind of book you're picking up. But having said that, you're right. There's a lot of adults who read them, and that's fabulous. Yeah. Um, do you uh, ever, I wanted to ask you about some specific stuff that comes up in your books that you also don't see so much in other children's books. Uh, the biggest one is the, the ADHD uh, backdrop of, of all of your, your characters and your, your books. Um, I think that, that is something that seemed kind of bold at first. Um, how did that come about? Well, it was just from personal experience. My, the, the Lightning Thief began as a bedtime story for my son. Uh, when he was in second grade. He was having a lot of trouble with school. We had just got him tested and learned that he has ADHD and dyslexia. And so that's why school was so difficult for him. So really, The Lightning Thief was my way of kind of giving him a reason to stay excited about school. He did like Greek mythology, which they were studying that year. So I made Percy ADHD and dyslexic, and I, I made it a, a good thing. I said, you know, if you have those conditions, that's a sign that you could be a demigod. And my son got totally behind that. And, yeah. <laughs> and I have a lot of, you know, kid, a lot of readers now that come up to me and say, thank you, you know, yeah. because that's me. And now I know that I'm a hero. And that you, what, there's, there's, the possibilities are open or limitless right. for, yeah. for you, too. Um, another thing that was really kind of bold uh, was to have a character who's gay in these books, Nico. Um, how did you decide to do that, and how has that gone? Yeah, that's, um, you know, again, that's really not something that I intentionally sat down and said, okay, you know, I am going to do this, and then create a character out of the desire. It was more, I was writing the character for three or four books, and by the second book that he was appearing in, uh, you know, he was sort of informing me that that was part of his life experience, and that's who he was. And I wanted to honor that. I didn't want to just sort of sweep it under the rug and pretend it wasn't him. Um, so I, I wanted to, to be you know, uh, true to him, to who he was. And also, I mean, as I said, as a teacher, I've been lucky enough to teach all kinds of kids right. from all kinds of backgrounds. And absolutely, I've had you know, LGBTQ kids. And I also wanted to honor them because right. it's true. They don't often see themselves, see themselves in, in the fiction. Books. And yeah. they deserve to. Right. That's great. Do you ever miss being a teacher or miss being in the classroom? Yeah, I do miss my classroom. I miss, uh, you know, doing fun activities with my kids and, uh, you know, seeing them get excited about whatever it is we're learning, about history, about English. Um, you know, the grading papers, eh, not so much. Uh, but, you know, the neat thing is I still feel like a teacher. It's just that yeah, now I've got, like, millions kind. of kids in my classroom. Yeah, true. Um, Let's see, where, uh, what else? we have a few more questions before we turn it over to uh, the audience. Um, uh, well, maybe we should go now to talk a little bit about uh, what's next for Rick Riordan. Uh, there, there's lots of rumors out there, but do you want to tell us what, what project you've been um, immersed in and yeah, what's coming next? Sure, sure. Well, uh, as soon as uh, I finish wrapping up work on the Greek heroes, which I mentioned, uh, I am I'm returning to a series that I've been planning for a long, long time and finally was able to schedule, and that is my Norse 
mythology series. Norse mythology. You know, I've, I've loved Norse mythology since I was a kid. Uh, Magnus it's Chase. It's a great unknown. It's the least oh, it's known, great. really, in America. Yeah, yeah. Now, Magnus Chase is the character. Magnus Chase and the Gods of Asgard, that's the series name. The first book, The Sword of Summer. It'll be out Sword next of Summer. October. So can you tell us anything about uh, how you're finding Norse mythology compared to Greek and Roman? Big similarities? Are you surprised by the differences? Well, I mean, I, I have always been a fan of Norse mythology, so it really is like coming home. Uh, I mean, I don't know that anything surprises me that I, didn't, that I wasn't aware of before. It is very interesting to do a compare and contrast yeah. with Greek mythology because there are a lot of similarities, but the differences are just nuts. I mean, there are, you know, for instance, five different war gods among the Norse. Which, five? Really? Yeah, which wow. shows you something about their priorities, <laughs> right? And, the Romans um, were warlike. Yeah, no, the, the Vikings, they, uh, they knew what they were doing, you know. Uh, but Thor is just a, a fantastic well, How many guy. love gods, though? We have to balance uh, that. Just, just two, maybe oh, three, man. depending on how you count them. <laughs> uh, they're, they're great. Loki, Odin, that whole gang. I can't wait to, to wow. you know, tackle that. Um, and are we going to see any, uh, there's maybe a, a relative of a character from? Yeah, Ma well, Magnus Chase shares the same last name as my character, Annabeth, and that is intentional. They are related. Uh, and how exactly that works, that comes out uh, during the course of the series. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. But yeah, the worlds exist side by side. Wow, interesting. Well, are we, uh, is it time to go to the audience? Okay. Uh, to all the young writers, what would you, um, like, what advice would you give them for starting a series? Yeah, great question. Um, there are three main things, just generally speaking. You need to read a lot, which I'm sure you probably already do, but that's where you're going to get your sort of experience about how stories are told and what kind of stories you like. Second thing, you got to write a lot, because it's like a sport. If you don't practice, you don't get better. So write a little bit every day. Third, don't give up. My first book was rejected 14 times. Uh, you know, if I'd given up after five rejections or 10 rejections, I wouldn't be here. So you just have to keep trying. If you do th all three of those things, uh, your, your odds are much better. Good luck. Yes, hi. Um, hi, it's an Annabeth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> first, I want to thank you for um, putting Camp Half-Blood on Long Island. As a Long Islander, it's a really an honor to go, the camp's right here. Wow. Um, and I would like to know, what advice would you like to give our heroes? All of them, any of them, just as a person and through their class? Okay. That's a, that's a great question I don't think I've ever gotten. Um, since you mentioned Long Island, the reason that Camp Half-Blood is on Long Island is my wife is a New Yorker. Uh, part of her family is from Rochester. The other part is from Long Island. Uh, they had a farm out by Riverhead. And so we visited out there, and that's why I put Camp Half-Blood on the North Shore. Anyway, advice to the characters, uh, you know, stay alive. That, that really is about it. I mean, they have had such a hard run, these guys, that if they can just stay alive until they become adults, I think their lives might get a little bit more even. Um, we'll hope. Why did, you not, uh, why did you decide not to do an epilogue? Why did I decide not to do an epilogue? Because I don't do epilogues, I just hate them. Uh, the reason is I think, I think they're lazy for the writer to do that and I think they're a disservice to the reader. That's my own thing. Because I think it nails, a, it's like a coffin, it's like nailing the story shut. This is the way it ends, you can't imagine 
any other ending. This is, you know, they have, they grow up, they have this many kids, here's their names, here's where they go to school, here's where they die, here's the kind of car they drive. No, you know, I want to leave some of that to your imagination. Uh, plus, if I did an epilogue, that would be it. There would be absolutely no chance that I would ever go back to those stories again. So I kind of want to leave it open, both for me and for you guys. Hi there. Hey. Uh, first, I want to say thank you for having Leo be from Houston, because I'm from Houston. Yay. So I know, Texas, woo! Um, so my question is, uh, obviously you went back to the, um, the idea of Percy Jackson with the uh, Heroes of Olympus. Would you consider going back and adding more to the Kane Chronicles? That's a great question. The, the way that I've added so far to the Canes is by doing some crossover stories with Percy's world. So I've done two of those. A third of those crossover stories is coming out in the spring. It's called The Crown of Ptolemy, and that has Percy, Annabeth, Carter, and Sadie. The problem with uh, Egyptian mythology is that there's simply not that much. Compared to what we know about Greece and Rome and the Norse, I mean, there's just a very, very little bit that's survived. And I've kind of run through every source that I could find. So trying to do another uh, book might be a little tough. So that, that's why I, I sort of targeted it as a trilogy. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to say thank you, first of all, for putting Camp Jupiter in the Bay Area. That's where I'm from. So. All right. Woo. Um, I was wondering if you could, you kind of touched on this earlier, if you could elaborate on your research process, um, specifically how you integrate the monsters into um, current, like, real life. Yeah. I, I don't really think about it too much. I mean, the research is all from the primary sources. There are some great websites. Theoi.com is one. Uh, the Perseus Project is another one that you can, you can do searches and you can find instances of where each monster appears in the primary documents from Greece and Rome. But I also have a lot of hard copies of all, you know, Apollonius and uh, Ovid and Homer and all of Hesiod, all of those guys. So I go back, I read the primary sources, and then I think, okay, this is an interesting monster. Where can I put him or her? Where does it fit in the story? And I just imagine them in a modern setting, and I kind of go from there. Their personality, that kind of develops as I write about them. I often don't know. Like when I started writing about Medusa, I had no idea that she was going to have like a, a garden gnome emporium, you know, in New Jersey. But as I was writing about it, it just made total sense. Um, um, as a Hephaestus kid, um, throughout the stories, you said that the demigods weren't able to use technology because we were being tracked by the, through the cell phones. How right. would that work? Yeah. Because I've yeah. been trying to figure out a way around that. Yes. <laughs> Spoken like a good Hephaestus kid. I like your outfit. Nice goggles, too. Those are awesome. Um, you know, that was really a device on my part because I didn't want things to be too easy for them. And cell phones make a lot of things very easy. I wanted to make it difficult. So I put that restriction in. And how to get around that? Well, I don't know, but if anybody can figure it out, a Hephaestus cabin kid certainly could, so good luck. <laughs> Hi, I'm Frank, not the son of Mars. <laughs> Anyways, um, I love the fact how you make Kronos the main villain in the first series, so uh, the whole part when he got cut up and everything, I was, yeah. looks oh, many books for it. Uh, yeah. Where's your source, or did you make it up? Well, I didn't make it up. The, the thing about him getting cut up was uh, an idea that was posited by a guy named Bernard Evslin, who, uh, and Robert Graves actually touched us on this too. They kind of extrapolate backwards and they look at the tradition of um, the old man uh, of the old year and the baby new year 
and the, the old man with the scythe as being Father Time. And there used to be a tradition where there was actually a ritual sacrifice. And the old year dude was killed and the new year king took his place. And so that's where we get the idea of Cronus being chopped into pieces and deposed so that Zeus, whose baby new year, can take over for his dad. So, and I just like that idea. I thought that was really cool. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, why do you s decide to stop it on the Blood of Olympus? Like, why not go on into a different kind of series with Percy? Why not go on? Well, I mean, it certainly uh, is a possible thing. I just don't know. I, I did five books because I kind of wanted the structure to mirror what was going on in Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And five books felt like a good stopping point, and that's enough to tell the story that I wanted to tell. But having said that, like you know, like we were talking about with epilogues, I don't do you know, I don't do closure. <laughs> I just don't. I don't. I don't believe in wrapping everything up in a neat bow, you know, and saying here's exactly what happens to every single person for the rest of their lives. So yes, there are um, a lot of things that could be written about. Um, whether I'll get a chance to write about them or what they might be, I don't know. But I kind of like it that, that I left some things open for your imagination, that you can kind of wonder, you know, what are they doing out there? Hi. Hey. Um, I'm a science teacher, too, so I, I awesome. see how um, the books have influenced the kids that I teach because I love to talk about them. But um, how have the kids that you taught or your former students influenced the books themselves? Well, when I first started, uh, I mean, I didn't think of teaching as on-the-job training, but it really was, because I was getting to know exactly what that audience wants, what they like when they read, what is boring to them, what's exciting to them. Uh, and I was reading a lot to them and telling stories in class. So really, there's everything about being a teacher and those kids influence the way that I write. Um, specifically, I had some kids, when The Lightning Thief was in manuscript form, that read it for me and gave me great feedback and sort of you know, reality checked me about whether this was gonna work for sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Um, and some of them even appear in the books. I name some of the characters after former students, like Nico, that's a former student's name, Charles Beckendorf, uh, Travis and Connor Stoll, uh, Mrs. Dodds, the evil math teacher. Yeah, she's real, you know, her, her name is Mrs. Dodds. And Mr. Bruner, another teacher that I, that I taught with. Hi, Uncle Rick. Hey. All right, this is my question, because I started reading this not too, too long ago during the BA okay. controversy. Did you expect the second series to be a front for the diversity the way it is now? Like, when you started writing uh -huh. the first of the Heroes Olympus, did you expect it to become such a rep force for representation in YA? So, to become a what of diversity, A I'm force sorry? of representation. Oh, I, oh. That's why I fell in love. I fell uh -huh. in love with Percy for the adventure, but when I, went, when I moved yeah. to Heroes Olympus, I loved yeah. that there were so many people like me in the books. Good, yeah. So, yeah. that's why I was wondering, did you expect it when you first made your first draft? I mean, I... You know, I, I guess it's sort of not, I mean, it's not like, like I was talking about with Nico, it's not that I started with saying I have to do this and then let's write a character sort of around that, that, that symbol or that representation or whatever. But I, I was sort of conscious in general terms that with a cast of seven demigods, those seven should look like one of my classrooms, you know, and they should reflect what real kids look like and where they come from. And that's not all white guys, you know? 
And so, yes, I mean, in very broad terms, I was aware of that, and I tried to honor that. Um, and, you know, I, when I write about a perspective that's not mine, because I am, you know, a straight white guy, and that's sort of where I come from, I just try to think of my students, of um, where they have come from, what they have taught me, because like any teacher worth their salt, I mean, I learned as much from them as they learned from me. They taught me a lot. And I just try to be a good listener and, and represent their points of view as best I can. I don't always get it right, but, but I try. Yeah. yeah. Why do you have so many monsters, like, own shops or work at shops? <laughs> <laughs> no offense to our friends at Apple. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, someone pointed that out to me on the tour last week. They said, you know, do you know how many monsters go into retail? And I, I'm not sure what that's about. I, I guess maybe it, it's just an easy target. Uh, I mean, to be fair, though, a lot of them are also teachers, so... Mm. Hi, so in the Greek god, I'm um, sorry, the Greek heroes, are you gonna talk more about like the ancient heroes or in the future, like present? Greek, well, Greek heroes is like Greek gods in that it's not a new Percy Jackson book. It's not about Camp Half-Blood. It's Percy telling you about the original heroes from the old stories. So you're gonna hear his take on what Hercules was like and what he did. Um, his take on the original Perseus. Theseus, the Minotaur, Jason, or all of those guys. So yeah, it's the old stories told from Percy Jackson's snarky point of view. So. Hi, Rick. So hey. I was just wondering, um, why did you decide not to include Percy's point of view in The Blood of Olympus? Percy doesn't have a point of view, and Annabeth doesn't either, because uh, House of Hades was their book. I mean, it was like, that was their spotlight. That was all about them. And so, to be fair to the other narrators, it was time for them to step back and let somebody else do the narrating. And Jason and Piper, and to extent Leo, they got shafted in the last book. They really were not there. So it really was their turn. And also, you know, I wanted the series to end the way it began with Jason, Piper, and Leo, with the addition of Reina and Nico. And I couldn't really have told their story and had room for it if I'd had Percy and Annabeth too. I mean, when, when they're there, the, I think most of the readers that, you know, they like focus on Percy and Annabeth like a spotlight, and that's all they pay attention to. And I get that, you know, we've known them for the longest. Uh, but it really was time for them to back away and kind of let this be more about the team. An interesting thing, uh, people have been talking about Percy's fatal flaw, uh, and why wasn't that part of this? And it was. The, the thing is, and it's mentioned a few times in the book, Percy's flaw is that if you leave it to him, He'll save a friend and sacrifice the world. And if it were up to him, he couldn't have done what happened. I won't give any spoilers if you haven't read the book yet. So his fatal flaw was, and the way he solved it, he needed to back away. He needed to trust that somebody else could do the job. And so in a way, Percy not being there as strongly in that book, that's kind of the point. He had to back away and let the others take over. Hi there. Hi. I am asking a question on behalf of my sister. She lives in Pennsylvania. Cool. She would like to know why Blackjack was a girl the first time in Sea of Monsters and then a boy in Titans Curse. Yes. Percy, Percy calls Blackjack a mare in the Sea of Monsters. Um, and then later on, for the rest of the series, he's a stallion. Uh, well, I could tell you that Percy's just not very observant. 
You know, there was a lot going on, and he was like, yeah, it's a mayor. Oh, whoops, no, it's not. You know, really, I just forgot. I was just author, you know, and then it's published, and what am I going to do? But I always wanted Blackjack. When I knew he was going to be a character, I wanted it to be a stallion, just because I could hear his voice. Hey, boss, I don't like that wine, dude. You know, so I just knew he was going to be a stallion. My bad. Uh, hello. Hi. I was wondering if there was a particular reason why you chose the seven main characters to be the children of the gods that they were children of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just wanted a good mix. And I kind of went with the different characters and what seemed to make sense. Um, I tried to pick some of the, you know, the really big gods that hadn't been represented yet. And some of the minor gods, or more minor gods, that I thought were interesting. Like Aphrodite, I think she gets a bad rap. You know, it would be really difficult to be a kid of Aphrodite, I think. Uh, and I, I hadn't really presented most of them as really great characters. There were a few, and Percy Jackson, but not, not many. So Piper kind of coming to terms with being a child of Aphrodite was interesting to me. Uh, and same with Leo and Hephaestus. Um, and Hazel, I love Hazel. And being the child of Pluto, you know, that was really difficult for her. Yeah. Awesome, so I've been reading Percy Jackson for like 10 years since it first came out. All right. And I watched Percy grow from this 12 year old insecure little kid this 17, almost 17 year old hero. And at the same time, I've grown along with him. And now I'm in my senior year of high school and everything's ending, including this series. And I thank you so much. As soon as I finished this, The Blood of Olympus, I just sat in my house alone sobbing. Oh no! And just sobbing and sobbing. Um, so I want to know how this series has kind of affected you throughout your growth these past 10 years and how it feels for you that this series really is now over. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, I'm glad it's been part of your, your experience growing up. That is really amazing for me to hear. And it's an honor for me to be part of your, uh, your growing up and your reading. Um, it's, you know, it's bittersweet. Um, like I was saying earlier, it's sort of like, you know, part of me is really, really sad to wrap it up. But part of me also thinks that it's, it's a good time to wrap up this story. You know, Percy had one series already, and I was able to bring him back and a kind of a different context, and that was a lot of fun. You know, will we see that world again? I don't know, you know, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't ever close the door completely on anything. As long as I'm having fun with it, um, I hope that I can write a book that you guys will find is fun too. So we'll just have to see where it goes. But for now, I'm satisfied. Yeah, you bet. All right, I'm like really giddy right now. <laughs> um, so, it, this actually ties in really well with the question that you just had. Yeah. Um, how do you feel being grouped up with all these like awesome authors that like a lot of people grew up with, like J.K. Rowling and other authors like that? Like, how does it feel to know that you've influenced like a whole new generation of writer um, of writers and readers? Um, you know, when you put it that way, it's kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's, it's really great. I mean, it's beyond anything that I ever expected. For me, writing the books was a very personal, individual thing. It was just a story that I was telling my son. You know, I really, even though I was hoping it might get published and it might help a few kids, I, you know, I never imagined that it would get the kind of reception that it did. Um, so it, it's really uh, kind of surreal to me, to be up here and, and uh, you know, hearing all these experiences that you guys have had with the books over the years, but it's awesome. I mean, as a teacher, you know, creating readers, I mean, that's what I'm all about. So that's really, really fantastic for me. Thanks. Okay, so we're, we're wrapping up now. 
Thank you all so much for coming and for asking such great all right. questions. Thank you guys and, for coming. And thank you again to Rick Riordan.